When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. Let us help you escape your mind. All right, folks, welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. We have episode number 250 today. What a what a, what a great uh, episode to be 250 landing on here. So um, we have Bobby Azarian on who wrote the book, The Romance of Reality, um, and I, it's phenomenal. I highly recommend it. Um, you know, it, it covers a lot of the themes that we discuss on the show normally, um, and it gives kind of credence to some of the theories that are already out there but adds a new spin on it and uh, a more interesting spin i should say um and yeah there's a lot of good hard science in there as well as some interesting speculation and i, I just really recommend it so go check that book out down below i have the link um and uh, he also did a wonderful uh, episode on joe rogan uh, about a month back so I, I recommend people go check that out as well um and yeah before we get started if anybody uh, wants to support the show. I'm not going to go through the whole spiel. We have the link tree link down below. Uh, we've got a merch store. We've got Patreon. We've got um, you name it. And also, I just added a new thing onto our YouTube. So if you want to get the exclusive content that we normally put on our Patreon, I'm also going to be including that on our YouTube channel so you can sign up through that way. It's just $2 a month, the same thing as our Patreon. Uh, so go check that out. Uh, also, if you want to leave us a nice review on Spotify or Apple Podcast, we really appreciate that. That's a good way to support the show. Um, and yeah, we are just looking forward to this uh, conversation. And uh, again, the book is The Romance of Reality. I have the link down below. He also has uh, a Substack and a um, called The Road to Omega. And uh, I'll add the link after we're done with that as well. But welcome on the show, Bobby. How are you? Thanks for having me. Great. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, so I saw you on Rogan, and I'm like, we got to get this guy on. This is this guy's talking about all the stuff we normally talk about on the podcast. Um, and you you can tell that you did your homework and you put a lot of thought and effort into this book. How long did it take you to write the book? Uh, it took about two years, two and a half years maybe, including the editing phase. But uh, these thoughts had been brewing for probably a decade. Um maybe even closer to two decades 
if you know I go back to being an undergraduate and being a science major who is really interested in philosophy and reading, you know, lots of books about, um, you know, evolution, life, cosmology, books like David Deutsch's The Fabric of Reality. So uh, it was something that I knew I wanted to do, but I guess in grad school, I got a little bit uh, more serious about um, trying to acquire all the knowledge I would need to tell the story. And then um, in 2015, uh, after I got my PhD, I started doing science journalism. So I was uh, freelancing and pitching all kinds of articles, but a lot of those articles um, helped shape the ideas in the book. So it's, it's, it's kind of like a lifelong project, but uh, for two years I was focused almost exclusively on, a, on the book. Awesome. Yeah, um, you know, there's, I find what's interesting is you were very kind of critical or you critique the idea of like materialist or dogmatic scientism kind of in a way. And I really appreciate that as, you know, coming from your background, because I think that um, when you look at science, especially some of the more, you know, like uh, biology or evolution or these different branches, it can get kind of like, um, just looking at the mechanics of things as opposed to the phenomenology aspect of it. And um, I think that that's what's missing in most of science now is like, I think that's why people get latch on to some of the more woo or crazier ideas of things is because they don't have that like philosophical underpinning of what scientists communicate currently, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, there's problems on both sides, but both sides are, doing something good at the same time, but there, you know, it became kind of trendy, I guess. I think Stephen Hawking was responsible for making a comment like this. And then Neil deGrasse Tyson would echo it on like these like late night shows, mm -hmm. but basically that uh, science didn't need philosophy. And I think that's a really bad idea. And, you know, I think most of our greatest scientists from history understood that philosophy is this big part of science. Uh, science only knows what we know at the time. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there that we don't know. We should never make the mistake of thinking that we know everything right now. That's kind of the mistake people have always made in the past to think like, oh, we, we're living in modern times and we know everything. There's a ton of shit we don't know. And we have to kind of have a method for trying to get at what we don't know. And that's what philosophers do. So science needs philosophy, but um, at the same time, you know, you have people who are interested in these things, but um, don't have the discipline that scientists have as far as like being skeptical and that can open a person up to a world of supernatural beliefs that might not be true and might not be helpful for coping with everyday life. So science needs religion and philosophy but religion and philosophy also need science to kind of guide it no 100 percent. that's that's something we preach on the show and we always talk about um you know coon and the structure of scientific revolutions and i feel like we're in one of those bottlenecks right now we have people studying psychedelics we have people studying the nature of consciousness we have people like you coming up with like you know theories of everything kind of a thing um and i think that 
you know, whether it leads to, you know, I don't, I, like you said, I don't think we'll ever get to that end point. I think that's the whole point. We're all Sisyphus pushing the boulder up the mountain uh, for the next person. But uh, I think we can do a better job of listening to each other. And like you mentioned, like, um, you know, using our minds, not just observation. And I, I think that that's huge. So um, one of your, you know, the main themes early in your book uh, is kind of this idea of, abiogenesis but not the abiogenesis that we've kind of heard um what's that guy uh, clark or uh, not clark uh, from um stanley something from the university of california san diego who did that experiment where he um put everything in a bottle and it, he, like had all the ingredients what they thought the earth was like at the time so that's why people thought you know that's a that, that's how the way we've thought about abiogenesis but you kind of had a very very interesting take on it uh, which is correlated to the second law of thermodynamics. So why don't you discuss that a little bit? Yeah, so so the experiments you mentioned just showed that if you put like precursors, precursor molecules to organic chemistry in like a flask and then uh, just like subjected to like some sparks that you can get like, um, you know, molecules that are um, somewhat complex, like amino acids, it's really easy to, to generate amino acids. So at the time, you know, it, it was thought maybe that that was a breakthrough that you just need something like a strike of lightning hitting like a pond that has all these right molecules. But uh, scientists learned really quickly that the next steps, like getting to actually like a self-replicating system, which needs some sort of uh, genetic information. It also needs something to do uh, the task of what proteins would do to, to, to take that genetic information and build this system. So, um, yeah, so, so we haven't made life in the lab yet. And until we do that, I think we can't really say that we completely understand the origin of life, but we're getting a new picture of how life might have emerged based on a field called non-equilibrium thermodynamics. So most of us have heard of thermodynamics and the second law of thermodynamics that entropy increases. Um, Non-equilibrium thermodynamics is uh, taking the same type of, um, just taking the same foundational ideas and applying them to organized systems. And um, organized systems resist this tendency towards disorder described by the second law of thermodynamics. And so uh, non-equilibrium thermodynamics is interested in asking how systems manage to s sustain themselves, to stay ordered, to persist in this world that otherwise becomes increasingly disordered. And uh, the thing that scientists found out, how life is able to do this, um, and it was the quantum physicist Erwin Schrodinger who really popularized this in his book called What is Life? The guy with the the cat experiment that everyone knows about, the thought experiment. Um, yeah, so he, he wrote a very important book um, on biology, and it actually gave uh, Francis Crick and Watson the idea of what to look for. Um, so discovering the, the DNA molecule, the double helix, was inspired by this book. Anyway, Schrodinger said that living systems can evade this tendency towards disorder uh, because um, they're not closed off to the environment. And that second law of thermodynamics only applies to closed systems. But living systems are open systems. That means they can extract energy from the environment 
and that energy can be used to do work and that physical work is sustaining itself against this tide of increasing entropy so life always has to find energy in its environment to stay ordered and for humans that's food for uh, plants it's sunlight they do photosynthesis we have metabolism and we uh, can basically exist in this world uh, as an organized structure as a sentient system by um, doing this little game where we're always out there searching for energy and then later as life gets more complex there's other things that life has to worry about we have to avoid threats um, and we have to uh, maintain our stable organization in the face of um, you know a harsh and chaotic uh, world so we build order we build structures around us that helps maintain that order and that's really uh, what the nature of life is from this perspective life is a system that is always acquiring information about its environment through adapting and so it's this this information processing system this little computer that has to always get energy from its environment in order to stick around hey it's kaylee cuoco for priceline ready to go to your happy place for a happy price well why didn't you say so just download the priceline app right now and save up to 60 percent on hotels so whether it's cousin kevin's kazoo concert in kansas city go kevin or becky's bachelorette bash in bermuda you never have to miss a trip ever again so download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Yeah, no, that's super interesting. And, and one thing you mentioned a few times early in your book is the idea of free energy that, as you mentioned, um, you know, it's it's always finding a way to, to get this free energy. Um you also discussed you go into depth about you know like the chicken and the egg thing about like cell replication uh you also go into a, a dna rna proteins lipids um, but one thing i found very interesting um would be the idea you know the i think you mentioned 1977 was when they discovered those hydrothermal vents and the idea that there was these i, I mean what did you call them reductive autotrophs is that what they're yeah. called yeah. Chemoreductive autotrophs. Yeah, they're just really simple organisms that basically that be, is that considered an extremophile, or is that not even to that level? I I, th I think it would be. Okay. Yeah, because it's really really hot down there uh, next to those vents. They're basically these underwater volcanoes, and they're thought to be the new uh, the location for the origin of life. Um, you know, we don't know, but I think the the I idea the basic idea that it's going to be somewhere where water and you know solid material with um the atoms needed for organic chemistry 
it's going to be somewhere like that and there needs to be energy flowing through the system so it could be a freshwater hot spring there's another competing hypothesis that uh this happened in uh freshwater um because you know maybe ocean water salty water might provide some difficulties for some of these uh organization mechanisms to like happen geothermal yeah. features almost like what's that like yellowstone or something like that um so there are these rocky pores and i forget the actual uh molecular makeup of the pores but basically there there's hydrogen and oxygen and carbon and uh sulfur and phosphorus and you have uh lots of heat flowing through these systems and that heat kind of provides like um energy for uh, a molecular system to move through a sequence of configurations and uh, this process that has been called dissipative adaptation basically says that energy flowing through these systems uh, naturally will organize that system because the system will reconfigure itself to be able to, to extract that incoming energy better. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that these rocky pores could have played the role of like a, a lipid membrane, like cells are surrounded by this fatty tissue and it keeps all the stuff inside, but maybe it got started in a pore and you just had this simple uh, chemical reaction set that's called an autocatalytic set, but basically you can have a complex system form from simple molecules if you have energy flowing through the system and basically those molecules um, in an autocatalytic set will uh, create like a self-amplification process where the system grows larger. Interesting. Um, yeah, in terms of that, I, I found that very fascinating. And then you also go into like what would be needed, which would be geothermal, geochemical, and uh, you would need um, magma, seawater, and rock minerals to um, to initiate that. Um, yeah, some origin of life researchers have boiled it down to being like a, a wet, rocky, sunny planet. But yeah, you would need specifically like the location would have to have like lots of energy flowing through this molecular system. And if you have that, um, it's not this improbable thing that requires like a humongous amount of luck um, because the old idea was that, you know, the problem with with explaining life and why it seems so improbable was you need thousands of molecules to do what a self-replicating system needs to do. And the idea was that those all came together in just some collision. And that would be extremely unlikely to have all of the right molecules fall together at one moment. That's called the chance assembly hypothesis. But now we know it didn't happen that way. You have a small system, you have energy flowing through the system over time, you know, hundreds of thousands of years, maybe millions of years. And uh, it starts to basically organize those molecules into a larger aggregate and basically just keeps you know pushing the system in the direction of increasing complexity and so it's this gradual process that happens and once you understand that then you realize it wasn't this highly improbable cosmic accident it was part of this natural process but it only happens on those planets where the conditions are right so 
it's not going to be everywhere because for example other planets are so in our solar system don't have the right conditions but in other solar systems other galaxies there's lots of these exoplanets and basically when you have those conditions it, the new thinking is that it should cook up life you have the ingredients it's going to emerge and it has kind of interesting philosophical or spiritual implications i'd say because basically it says we're not an accident we're a natural manifestation of the laws of physics and the evolutionary dynamics that emerge from those laws and that kind of changes our perspective on our relationship to the universe yeah absolutely and i would agree with that i think that when you look at like a Richard Dawkins and this idea that it is some sort of cosmic accident. I never really liked that at all. And I think it's kind of dismissive. And actually from like a philosophical standpoint, you know, you could make the argument, well then what's the point of life? Um, like, you know, the, the teleological, um, explanation uh, for me would be that life is trying to survive, like you're saying. So, um, it goes through this process. So there is purpose, even if it's just to survive. So I, again, I don't like the, the cosmic accident um, uh, argument on that. But um, you mentioned too, like for the metabolic uh, cycles, you need nitrogen, hydrogen, oxygen, carbon, phosphorus, uh, and all that. How have you, have you ever really fully considered panspermia or the idea that maybe we were seeded with these organic compounds or things necessary to create this um, cosmic soup that led to us or anything along those lines? Uh, yeah, panspermia is possible, but I think if it happened somewhere else, it would still have occurred according to this dissipative adaptation mechanism. Well, well because yeah, because you're, you're, you're passing off the, right? It's, it's you're not even yeah. really explaining life. You're just passing it off and saying, oh, that's just how it got here, you know? Exactly. So, yeah, um, if, if that's shown to be true, um, that, is fine and i think um but yeah of course it leads to the same question like how did it arise on that other planet and so this mechanism would be the explanation of how life can get going not by this improbable you know vastly improbable mechanism but by something that happens gradually and uh, expectedly uh when you have energy flowing through the system and pushing it what's called far from equilibrium and equilibrium would be a state of like just complete chaos and everything's mixed up, all the molecules, there's no patterns. Um, that's a state of thermodynamic equilibrium. And um, so life uh, basically maintains this ordered state that non-equilibrium thermodynamics calls a far from equilibrium state. Interesting. Uh, one of the most interesting things, though, I found was this part where you were talking about, again, we were talking about abiogenesis, would be the early days, the Earth overproducing this chemical energy and these uh, chemical energy reservoirs, and it didn't have that balance to do anything with all of that free energy, as you mentioned. Um, and then this caused the thermodynamic instability, and it needed some sort of balance. Hence, you, you said it like interjects back into itself and starts to reorganize, and that's where you get start to get some of this complexity that leads to cells. Is it, am I saying that right? Yeah. Uh, Eric Smith and Harold Morowitz of the Santa Fe Institute uh, have done a lot of kind of groundbreaking origin of life research. And the way they explain it is that there were, were these like energy reservoirs, like this buildup of free energy, 
in like geochemical energy, basically energy had nowhere to flow. And that creates a sort of thermodynamic imbalance, a sort of pressure. And that what life is, is basically a flow path for that energy. And organic chemistry opens up a whole new domain of chemistry where um, energy can flow uh, and release that pressure where it couldn't before. So the idea is that uh, an earth with life is actually more stable than a lifeless earth with those kinds of thermodynamic conditions. Interesting. Um, you mentioned uh, Sarah Walker, who, you know, she's into, you know, a, uh, extraterrestrial life and all similar things. And, and Lee Cronin as well, who's into chemical uh, analysis of life and, and origins. And uh, they came up with this idea of assembly theory. Have you read their paper? And if so, what do you think about that? Yeah, I was just reading that last night, actually. Um, I, I think it's a good approach. I think we'll learn a lot from it. Um, I do think that we kind of need to understand this non-equilibrium thermodynamics narrative and how like that story of molecular self-assembly fits into this story of dissipative adaptation. So Sarah Walker's familiar with these mechanisms. She actually reviewed the book by the two scientists I just mentioned, Eric Smith and Herrick Morowitz, which talk a lot about this. But um, she's said, you know, uh, sometimes she's she's mentioned that she didn't think non-equilibrium thermodynamics is enough that we need information theory uh, to really understand like the nature of life. And that's true. Those two sciences are kind of two sides of the same coin. But I do think when she talks about life, like on recent interviews, there's a lot that she's missing conceptually that come from the non-equilibrium thermodynamics work, this like dissipative adaptation process that I think would kind of um uh kind of like prune the theory the self-assembly theory such that like you know some of the ideas that don't fit into this thermodynamic picture would kind of like be discarded from that and you would get a clear picture of the actual origin of life um so yeah maybe maybe you can have us both on sometime if you can yeah you can get her you can get her to come on yeah host a friendly chat slash debate absolutely um so, um, you know, you're, so your background, you're a neuroscientist, correct? Um, yeah. In, in, in the book, you discuss kind of your interest, though, in all these other things. I, you even mentioned it. What, what did you call it? Where it's um, um, kind of not like a polymath, but I forget. You mentioned there was a term for it you mentioned uh, for scientists. Um, to... I might have referred to uh, my old professor, who I mentioned, Harold Morowitz, as a polymath. He definitely was. And, um, he's what kind of motivated me to try to write a book with such large scope. Excuse me. Bless you. Bless you. Bless Thank you. you. Um, yeah, to write a book with such large scope. Uh, so he wrote a book called the emergence of everything. And it was just a big picture view of how like everything emerged from like stars and galaxies to life, to, you know, culture, to language, tool making, all of these things. So, um, yeah, I think uh, it's an era where generalists are just as important or more important than specialists. So in science, you have all these people who are specialists. They're trained to be specialists. The the kind of the, the, the structure of the academic system kind of um, 
forces them to to stay specialists because it's just this game about publishing as many papers as you can in your field. And I think um, now uh, to understand like these big questions, like what's the origin of life? What's the origin of consciousness? How is consciousness created? That you have to have, uh, you know, not an expert understanding, but at least like a basic understanding of all the sciences and all of the philosophies that inform science. So philosophy of mind, philosophy of science. And um, so, yeah, that's what the book tries to do is explain life and consciousness and intelligence and where life ultimately is going in the universe, um, basically by understanding evolution in these new terms, in terms of thermodynamics or energy flows and uh, information theory. Um, so the idea is that life basically is, uh, you know, a computational system that encodes knowledge about the outside world. And as life evolves, this island of knowledge grows and grows. And as life acquires more knowledge, it becomes better at manipulating the universe around it. And inevitably, it will spread outward from its planet of origin, get it given enough time. Yeah, that's, that's nice. super fascinating. Um, so I think like two or three years ago, we had this author on Jude Curavan. She wrote The Cosmic Hologram, and she was saying something similar to what I've been thinking, and now you're saying it too, which is the whole entropy thing. So the entropy definition or explanation in regards to the universe is that uh, it goes from order to disorder. Uh, but that doesn't make sense from a complex system standpoint or if you look at the organi organization of life and um, that kind of a thing. And her thing was more of, you know, obviously everything, you know, what there's everything's kind of made out of nothing in a way and it's all a hologram. And that um, her thing was that you know there's this data set and everything's based off of data and the data becomes more complex more organized so it's actually entropy is the opposite of what's been explained as it's as the, in the past and i don't think that's exactly what you're saying but it's kind of along the lines of what you're saying um so i mean again i i when i heard initially when i understood what entropy was I'm like, that doesn't make sense. So can you explain, yeah. you know, the original model of entropy and then kind of where we're at now with it? Yeah, so um, it would be hard to um, speak to uh, that that theory because I don't know exactly what she was saying about right. it. But, um, yeah, I have a friend, uh, an author, great author uh, of books, like the same sort of big cosmic nature. One was called the Lucifer Principle, another was the Global Brain, another was the God Problem, um, Howard Bloom. And he's been on Joe Rogan and says he, he doesn't believe in entropy. And um, he thinks the concept's wrong. And uh, I understand what people mean when they say that because uh, this concept that the universe is becoming more disordered is wrong. But um, the concept of entropy is like a specific thing that we use to measure, for example, the... Uh, so there's different types of entropies that measure diff different types of things, but you can have a type of entropy that measures uh, this the disorder or chaos in a system or the randomness, basically in a completely chaotic system where molecules are all just moving at random. That's high entropy and high disorder uh, uh, system where you have these molecules and they're 
statistically correlated with each other. Maybe they're bonded together by some chemical forces and they maintain that structure. Yeah, so the second law of thermodynamics has a really complicated history. But first it was just about um, basically heat flow. And the idea was that, you know, we, we all experience this every day. So if you have like a hot bath, it'll cool to warm temperature to room temperature over time um, until it, everything like the, the surrounding air and the water both uh, reach a mutual uniform temperature. Your cup of coffee cools. Um, so, yeah, heat spreads out. And basically that mechanism was used to power steam engines. And so people were trying to understand steam engines and you could, you could basically heat, um, you know, a liquid up by burning coal under it. And then it would expand and push what's called a piston. And that would create a force that could power a locomotive and then they would cool it and it would come back and then they would heat it again. So the cyclical process. So that's kind of how the second law of thermodynamics was born. Um, you know, this idea that heat spreads out, that was one thing, but they also realized that when they're doing this process, um, um, the energy that gets converted basically from the heat into mechanical energy, every time you do that process, it dissipates some of that energy in the form of heat. So, you know, our bodies are always giving off heat. Our computers are giving off heat, any physical process, you know, friction, creates heat. Um, so mechanical processes dissipate a little bit of energy and then that energy uh, is still there, but it's spread out in the like jostling of molecules and you can't harness that energy to do work anymore. And so entropy at first was just a measure. It was uh, of, of the quantity of energy no longer available from work for to do work. So it was just spread out energy. And then Ludwig Boltzmann came along. So that was like earlier 1800s or like 1840s, uh, you know, and then Boltzmann was probably around like 1870s or 1880s. And he was trying to understand the second law from the perspective of like imagining all of the little molecules moving around. And he created the science called statistical mechanics. And he was trying to explain the flow of heat, heat spreading out. Um, in terms of molecular interactions. And basically it was shown that heat is really, if you zoomed in what heat is, it's like the molecules moving more excitedly. It's just more rapid motion. And so he showed that, you know, a gas in a closed box, if it's like in an organized state, it will slowly spread out um, and become more disordered. So it would go from like an ordered state to a mixed up state. And that was kind of a statistical interpretation of the second law. Um, and then, so people started to understand it, entropy not as this measure of energy unavailable for work, but as disorder in a system. And then, so that's a whole different kind of entropy though, because you can then talk about like, for example, like a bag of M&Ms and you have the colors organized and then you mix the bag up and then you could talk about, you know, that system is becoming more entropic because it's more mixed up and there's no more patterns, but there's really not much going on as far as like the original thermodynamic thing when we're talking about like the spread out, you know, energy getting spread out. So basically there's multiple types of entropy. Entropy in one sense means disorder. That only applies to closed systems like a gas in a box. 
if a system is open, then it can keep uh, staying ordered as long as it gets energy from the environment. But then it takes that energy and it uses that energy and it dissipates that energy and spreads it out as heat. And that increases entropy in the first sense of, in the, of the original uh, idea of entropy. So entropy is still going up. And some people have tried to combine these two types of entropy and, you know, because in some ways they're talking about the same thing, but they go, oh, entropy is still going up because you took ordered energy like from the sun and then you dissipated it and created this disordered energy. And that's true. It's spreading out energy. But when you create heat, there's no disorganization. If you're looking at the large scale structure of the universe, and you have these pockets of, of life that are expanding by extracting the energy around it, it creating heat isn't structural disorder. It's just, it's, it's like basically you're doing this trick to make the disorder theme work by talking about two different types of disorder, structural disorder and energetic disorder. And so entropy goes up because the energy is getting used and dissipated, but basically organization can grow until that whole energy supply is used and there's some scientists like david deutsch who think that maybe that energy supply isn't finite and that as the universe expands um and if the universe is infinite and more matter comes into the horizon that's more free energy for life to use to sustain itself um he's also along with like stuart kaufman who's a complexity scientist some of these big names have talked about ways in which the expanding universe pushed by this mysterious dark energy force, perhaps dark energy could be used to be the free energy source that allows life to sustain itself. So this idea of a heat death, it's being challenged. It's no longer the assumption that our universe is dying. It seems to be growing more organized as long as life can capture the free energy in its surroundings. It can sustain itself, and there doesn't seem to be a limit necessarily on that free energy. We know that every star in the sky is a big battery for life. And basically, uh, the, the lifetime of our star, the fact that our sun will die in about 4 billion years, creates something like a game clock for any intelligent species. We know that we must expand if we're to continue to persist. And this is going to become more obvious to us the closer we get to that deadline and the smarter we get, because the smarter we get, the more farther into the future we look and the farther into the future we care about. So um, spreading through space is a biological necessity, but it's also what any advanced civilization will do uh, if they want to keep progressing because they still need energy. If they're this virtual, you know, if they're this technological society that's experiencing all these things in like digital, digital, excuse me, digital and virtual realms, um, that hardware is still real in the world and it needs to be powered. So even like post human, you know, intelligence would still need to continue expanding through the universe because it needs to have uh, energy to power its computation. And every star in the sky is like a big battery for life. So um, the book basically argues that the way that the earth was once not covered with life and then life emerged and now it dominates the planet, uh, it's going to spread through the universe 
and dominate the universe in the same sense. Yeah. So, I mean, this is something I think about regularly. I actually go back to like, uh, advanced environmental science in high school. We did this experiment and it's basic, uh, with fruit flies and you put them in a bottle and they'll reproduce, 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 reproduce. And at some point they'll run out of resources and they'll, they'll all die. Um, is that, do you see that as potential? Cause you know, we're mentioning earlier, I was talking about the chemical reservoirs and all that free energy, but it seems like we could get in trouble with the opposite of that. Meaning that maybe there's not enough, uh, or maybe we just haven't figured it out yet, but maybe at some point there wouldn't be enough energy on this planet for everyone. And as you mentioned, we would have to get off of it. Otherwise we would, you know, succumb to what I was talking about. Yeah, it creates an imperative. So challenges, existential challenges are good. They're good for progress. Without it, it would just come to some sort of stable equilibrium and life would not go anywhere because it wouldn't have to do anything uh, that would require that it become more advanced, uh, you know, uh, intelligence wise and technologically. So um, we need these challenges. And I think it is a natural uh, part of this you know, system that we call the universe that basically has this tendency towards disorder. And it also has this tendency to form, to form organized systems that resist that tendency towards disorder. So it's almost like life is something like an AI and it's learning from these challenges that the universe is giving it in the same way that you might have a chess playing computer program that you keep, you know, letting it play like human players and it keeps learning and learning it keeps losing and losing but every time it loses it's encoding those patterns it's encoding that knowledge and using it uh in the future uh and over time it becomes impossible to kill so um yeah um so the the story about energy on earth and whether we're going to run out um we had certain sources of energy like Sorry about that. No, you're fine. It's all right. So, um, yeah. So we need to eat food, as I said, to, um, you know, s stay in existence. Um, but we also use energy to power everything we do. And when we unlocked fossil fuels, that led to this big revolution. Um, steam engines, when we unlock the power of, you know, heat energy, so like thermal energy, um, and then later, uh, nuclear energy. So all these things are examples of us unlocking energy reservoirs that were there that could do tons of work, tons of computation. And so people always, you know, tend to think that, that, that the resources are limited, but really they're limited only until there's a paradigm shift or some groundbreaking discovery that allows you to unlock a whole new source of energy that you didn't even know existed. So the world around us is a vast ocean of free energy. And if you buy this argument that life, uh, in the book I call life adaptive complexity, because it's a network of complex adaptive systems that's integrated into one larger system, and it just learns, that's like the essence of what it does, it experiments and learns from its failures. It's always self-correcting. Um, if you buy that picture, then basically you look at the universe as this computational system. 
All right, folks. So yeah, we were having some technical difficulties. Um, I'm going to try and find out what the source of these issues is um, and um, go from there. Uh, we're going to have Bobby back on in the near future. It was a fascinating conversation. I recommend everybody go check out his book, The Romance of Reality. Uh, super interesting book, especially if you like science and physics and consciousness and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, uh, I highly recommend it. So go check that out. I have the link down below, but we are going to have Bobby back on, uh, in the near future for part two. Uh, if you want to support our show, um, please check out our link tree link and we've got Patreon on there. We've got, um, uh, you name it, uh, merch store, uh, all sorts of stuff. And if you want to support the show, just leave us a nice review on Apple podcast and Spotify. Uh, but I just wanted to let everybody know, uh, we love everybody. Uh, stay safe out there and, uh, we'll catch you next time. Peace.